we have such a joy here praising you. Our hearts are just full as we've sang songs and heard tremendous truth. Uh, It stimulates us, Lord, to love our Savior and love one another. What a joy to be a part of a body of Christ that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time in your word. We know that your word has the answers. It is the truth, Lord. And so we turn to that to strengthen us in a world that has no longer any absolutes, uh, full of evil and false directions, but not here. We have your word. And Lord, it tells us of the great gospel and the light that has come into a dark world. Lord, may we enjoy the time in the word today. We pray for those who cannot be here with us today. Lord, do pray that you would strengthen them. Pray for all those who are going through treatment or uh, illnesses or hospitalization. Lord, uh, we miss them. We do pray that you would uh, show your mercy on them and bring them back to us soon, Lord. We thank you for those who uh, call on our shut-ins, Lord, those who just can't get here, Lord. We ask that you would bless them and care for them as well. Grateful for our missionaries around the world, Lord. They, too, are celebrating this season as they proclaim Jesus as the light of the world. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. Strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible is very clear that we live in a dark and fallen world, isn't it? Uh, We began to look at that last week. And, And yet, God sends his perfect son into this dark and fallen world, and he he leads his children. I I just just thinking about that. He's led his children out of darkness into light. That's you and I. Those are anyone who professes to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been led out of darkness into the light. And if there is anything the incarnation does, it teaches us that God has led us out of darkness into light. When we speak about the incarnation, we we are reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ, our eternal Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, has always existed. But in order to save us through the Father's plan, He would step out of heaven and He would be completely God and completely man. And so it it is our incarnation that was God's plan. And He is like no other ruler, right? He is God. And when we think about Christmas and the incarnation and the coming, we are reminded that God is not like the rest of the sinful rulers of the world. He has intentionally came in a way to help us understand our relationship with Him. God took the initiative, didn't He? God took the initiative to rescue us. That's Christmas. It really is. And when we think about the incarnation and all the, the manger scene and all of that, that is God taking the initiative to rescue people in darkness. It is God that established that plan from the foundations of the world. He established that. And the gates of hell won't stop it. No matter how hellish it gets going on out there, which is, it's, it seems like the gates of hell are raging a little bit in some ways, it can't stop the providential plan of God. And that plan included God revealing himself. I want you to think about this. To know God, to fully know God, was now, is now to fully know the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot know God any other way in the fullness. And that's who Jesus is. He came, his beloved son, to, to give us a personal relationship with the Father and reveal him to us. And so his son has always been the plan. He's always been the plan to provide us back 
a way to the Father. And so when we think about the incarnation this morning, we're reminded of the, just the depth of God's love. I mean, there's just no hope. If Jesus does not come, if he's not born of that virgin by the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see today, if he does not do that, we are doomed. And so it is the greatest act of God's love, isn't it? That he would send his son to rescue us. Well, this morning I want to bounce back between Matthew 1 and Luke 1 as we remind ourselves of the darkness of the fall of man. It is dark and it was difficult. But that cannot stop the coming light of Christ. And that's what makes Christmas so special. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. There we started in this passage last week and we were reminded that the sin of mankind was our first point there in this unstoppable promise of God. We ran back to Genesis, you remember, we ran back and we saw there the fall of man, the difficulties that were with that. We saw the consequences that came with that fall and yet in the middle of that we saw the promise of God, right? He would crush the head of the serpent And that would be through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We went on to look through Genesis and we found dark times, didn't we? We found the intent of the heart of every person on the earth was evil. And yet God had a righteous man there named Noah. And the seed came through his children. And we watched that as the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then it was put on full display what God was going to do in an illustration with Abraham and Isaac on top of Mount Moroni with a lamb being the rescue. We looked further into some of the patriarchs and we saw that death was looming, but God provided a way to protect that seed. Well, this morning, as we were in the middle of that passage in Matthew chapter 1, I want to drop into verses 22 and 23, if you have your Bibles in front of you. Here it says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. We could look at many, many illustrations through the Old Testament. Battle after battle, uh, uh, sinful nation rejecting God. We could look at all of that and see God preserving the line of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way through that. But our text gives us a great illustration here. And this, this here in verse 22 and 23, particularly verse 23 is lifted right out of Isaiah chapter 7. Look at these verses with me. Now all this took place, speaking of that Mary would bear a son, that his name would be Jesus, that he would save people from his sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill, very key word, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he quotes the prophet, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Well, for the sake of time, I want to just focus on this illustration since it's in the text here. And Matthew does such a good job throughout the book of Matthew. He actually uses the word fulfill more than any of the uh, gospel writers because his goal was to prove the Messiahship was found in Jesus Christ. There was not going to come another Messiah. Still, people are waiting for a Messiah. This is Jesus And Matthew was trying to prove that, and so he uses the term fulfill quite often. And so in his writing, inspired by the Spirit of God, he lifts out of Isaiah this passage, Isaiah 7, 14. Now, the truth and circumstances of the New Testament um, 
are the fulfillment of so much revelation in the Old Testament. And that's what Matthew's doing here. And though uh, often the revelation, when we look at it in the Old Testament, is somewhat veiled, um, we maybe see a partial form of it, the New Testament brings fulfillment to it. So that's why we still read the Old Testament, because we know there's a biblical theology, there's a flow, all working to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some background. We see in verse 23 this quote from Isaiah chapter 7. Um, in the scene, just let me give you the scene here. You might make your way over to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to be there in just a moment. But let me give you the scene as we think about it and understand what's going on. Because I'm trying to help us understand how difficult humanity uh, is in its darkness and it's in its sin nature and how how wonderful it was that God could do something so miraculous when man was so evil. And this is a perfect section to try to understand that point. When you drop into the scene in Isaiah 7, you find the reign of King Ahaz. Now, if you're an Old Testament student at all, when I say Ahaz, you go, oh, he had a really kind, sweet wife. Her name was Jezebel. <laughs> so you begin to understand this is, this is a problem, isn't it? And Ahaz was the grandson of the great king Uzziah. His father was Jotham. The Bible says that both of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. They loved the Lord and they, for the most part, followed him. But not Ahaz. Ahaz is referred to in the scriptures as a wicked king. You can read about all this in 2 Kings 15 through 16, but Ahaz had led Jerusalem, remember the southern tribe, Judah, and Benjamin are down there. They've got the southern tribes, and then the northern are the ten. Well, this is southern tribe, and Ahaz had led Jerusalem in the surrounding area into deep idolatry. They worshiped Moloch, they burned their babies to Baal, and there was deep problems. And now he's got problems with kings that want him dead, want him thrown out, and they want that southern kingdom. And so Risen, the king of Syria... He partners with Pekah, the king of Israel. These are two wicked kings, and they attempt to remove Ahaz from power and replace him with a king that would benefit them. Now, the people of Judah, and think about this, the royal line of Christ is down in the southern kingdom. They're threatened. All of them are under great threat. And Ahaz, instead of turning to God with these two, uh, the, the northern tribes, coming against him and the power of Syria coming against them, he does not turn to the Lord. Instead, he turns and looks for another to help him. And that king was Tiglag-Pileser. He was the king of Assyria. And Ahaz does some terrible things. He goes into the temple, robs the temple of all of its gold and silver, and he gave it to Tiglag-Pileser in order to get him to come and protect him from these wicked kings. The prophet Isaiah gets involved, and he comes to Ahaz and said, Look, God will deliver you from these two kings. But Ahaz refuses. He's a pagan. He's godless. He refuses to listen to the prophet. But Isaiah wouldn't give up, right? He's, he's of God. He has a word from God. He's bringing that. And he responds with an incredible prophecy mentioned in this verse in Matthew. And as we look in Isaiah 7, we'll see it here. So Isaiah was prophesying, you've got to understand this, to this wicked king. He's going to tell him that no one 
can destroy this kingdom, and no one is going to destroy the seed of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. And he says, the Lord will give you a sign. Just drop into Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, if you're there. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Isaiah is the mouthpiece here, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol and high as heaven. That's quite a statement. Ask of a massive request here. You've got two nations coming on your border that have all of the ability to absolutely destroy you and everybody here. So ask for a sign. But Ahaz, in his pride, says, I will not, nor will I test the Lord. He's acting spiritual, but he's not. And then he said, listen now, O house of David, Isaiah again speaking here, it is too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well. Now Isaiah's fired up. God's here. He's going to give you a sign. He's going to help you get through this. He's going to protect his line here. And you reject him. And it's one thing to reject me, but you're not just rejecting me. You're rejecting God. This is a statement on the authority of God's word spoken through the prophet. So he says the great verse that we're at, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to listen to man? Listen to God. He'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at, at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For behold, the boy will know enough to refuse evil and good in the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The prophet uses an interesting pronoun here. Instead of just speaking to Ahaz the king, in verse 14, he says, the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. And so it's, it's more than Ahaz here. It's, it's, it's a sign to the nation. In a way, as we read this, it's a sign to us of the promise of God that no matter how wicked man is, no matter how wicked kingdoms are and rulers are out there, God is going to rescue his people. It's such a great teaching, isn't it? They will not destroy the line of David. They will not destroy the line of Christ. And though Tiglag-Pileser does destroy the northern tribes and takes them after the captivity in 722 B.C., that does happen 120-plus years before the northern tribe, uh, excuse me, the southern tribe goes off to Babylon, God promises he'll never let his line die. Now, when you study this, like many prophecies in the Old Testament, there's often an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a long-range fulfillment or completion of the prophecy here. And so God promised Ahaz in this text that his lineage would not be cut off, and God would give Ahaz another son, and before the maturity of that son, where he's mature enough to eat curds and honey, I, I, don't, I guess you don't feed baby curds and honey, but... So that means he's got to be a little older, right? Before that's going to happen, those kings are dead. That's the prophecy. And just as prophesied, before the boy reached three, we know this, we study the scriptures, both King Risen of Syria and King Pekah of, of the king of Israel, the northern tribes, they're dead and Assyrian has been turned away. Now, just as the ancient prophecy of a child came true, right? Jotham, 
uh, Ahaz has a son. Uh, the, and Ahaz is the, the son of Jotham and son, and son of Uaz, U- U- Uaza. Um, he has a son. But there's a bigger prophecy here. And what's fascinating is you look at Matthew 9. If you have your finger there, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, these three kings are in the line. There they are, including Ahaz. Because coming through that line to the seed of Christ was even wicked kings. And what's amazing is to study that, you find prostitutes in that line. You, you, you find all kinds of things going on in the line of Christ, but God will preserve it because the king of kings has to come first in a cradle and then to rule his world. Now, both were signs that God would never forsake his people. This is a good reminder, right? And so he uses, way back here, 700 years before the birth of Christ, this word Emmanuel. It's a promise that God is going to be with his people. And how he's going to dwell with them. Well, that's what Christmas is about, isn't it? And so the name of the son born to the virgin is Emmanuel. And though it's used more of a title and a description of of his overall person of who he is, he's God with us. He's God in every sense. He shares the full deity and nature of God, and yet he rides with us in a personal relationship. That's his title, and that's how he is to be looked at. And so when we get into the incarnation, Jesus is the most literal sense of God with us. The fact that the virgin shall be with child, as this verse way back when quotes to us, is marvelous. You have a pregnant virgin. (laughs) And I think what's just equally marveling about that is God is with us. Which one would you think is more marvelous? (laughs) It is astounding, isn't it? It is both the handiwork of God. So God had tabernacled and he had templed at one time. He resided in his Shekinah glory with the nation. Uh, this, that, refers, that Shekinah glory refers to his character and his persons and his essence of all he is. And now the child has now come when we get to Matthew and Luke as we study this through this season. The Shekinah glory of God is now tabernacling among men. And that's exactly how John describes Jesus in his prologue in the first chapter of John. He says it this way, the Word, that's, that's Christ, that's the incarnate one, that's the Emmanuel. The Word became flesh and he tabernacled, dwelt with us. And John says we beheld his glory, same terms used of the Shekinah glory of God, same terms used of God Almighty. We saw his glory. John's telling you, John is telling us, God is with us. All of the promises that God made came true. And so the prophet Isaiah was God's instrument to announce the word of God to all of mankind, that God would dwell with them even in the most difficult circumstances. And the more I studied Isaiah this last couple of weeks, I thought, oh, Lord, if we look at this from a human way, it's impossible. The little tribes of Judah and Benjamin standing against the ten other tribes and the, and the world power of Syria coming against them. Oh, nothing can stop our God. He is unstoppable. And so when we get to the incarnation, we find even a more intimate and even a more personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what Christmas is about. It reminds us 
that we worship God in the Shekinah glory now is on full display in the manger. I, traveling around the world, and then even in our world, you'll see manger scenes, and you'll see scenes of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and, and they make halos around them and all that. And I know sometimes that bothers us a little bit, but just think about this. He is the Shekinah glory. And I think if I had to draw it after study on this, you wouldn't even be able to look at it. It'd be so bright. That's who our Lord really is. And yet veils that. He veils that in his flesh so that he can grow up and they'll kill him. If his full glory is on display, who's going to kill him? No one. And he veils that because he's headed to the cross. And so this light comes into a very, very dark world. We sang it at that one song says, as he learned to walk and stumbled on the ground that he created. I mean, that's our Lord. That's our Lord who humbled himself to the point of taking on flesh like a man to the point of death, even to the point of the cross. And so the creator, sustainer of all things is hanging on that cross, let alone in that cradle. But there were great hurdles. Let me go to the second point here. The triune God who overcomes the sin nature of Jesus' earthly parents. Go to Luke chapter 1, that passage Pastor Jerry read for us. This is in itself an astounding passage as well. It bucks the whole system of the works-based religion that surrounds the world. It goes against the heresy of uh, the worship of Mary and all the things that go on there. This, this text shows us that there is a young girl who has to birth her Savior. It's astounding, and it reminds us that this was difficult. Life was difficult. Life was hard. And God had been silent for so long. And when we come to verse 26, it tells us the setting, doesn't it? Now in the sixth month, right? That's, that's referring back to Elizabeth. She's now pregnant six months with John the Baptist, which just, that was miraculous, right? She was a barren woman, uh, full of shame. She even talks about that her disgrace had been removed by the grace of God. And so this is the scene, Elizabeth, six months pregnant with John the Baptist, her husband's still speechless <laughs> because of his doubt in the temple. And Zechariah is waiting for his son to be born. And, and God does great things, but he's speaking again. It's been 400 years of silence. I think I said that last week. We think that could be five, six, seven generations. And we know at this time of life, at the time of birth of Jesus Christ, men live to an average age of around 42 so you're talking about generations of not hearing from God. And now he's speaking to Zechariah through angels. Mary is going to hear from him. Joseph has had a dream. And then uh, Gabriel coming to him as well. Uh, Simeon is going to be in the temple and going to be reminded that the Savior, the Redeemer of Israel has come. And all that has been silent for so long. And the Lord is speaking Notice in verse 26 that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Well, just as Gabriel had revealed the pregnancy of Elizabeth, now this same angel, this servant of God, is again speaking God's word to announce to Mary of her coming pregnancy. Look at verse 27 28. 
Notice he's speaking to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. It's very clear. We know exactly who this is. Of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said, Your greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Well, here we have this remarkable revelation from God. It's, it's incredible. It's amazing. It's astounding to think about this young girl having a visit from an archangel coming from the presence of God to visit this young girl, most likely from poor descendants, most likely not wealthy. She's not among the religious elite of Jerusalem. And she is betrothed to a man she probably barely knows, named Joseph. In the eyes of the religious elite, she's a nobody when she's from nobodiesville, Nazareth. She's not one that they would think the Messiah would come through. But she's not a nobody in God's plan. And I love that about our Father in heaven. His children are not nobodies. And as maybe veiled as you feel like some days in this world with all of its things going on, God knows you. And nobody is a nobody to him. Notice in verse 28, we get this phrase, and it must be looked at because here's God coming to a sinful girl, a sinner who's going to need her own child to save her, and makes this statement, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, what makes this statement so amazing is, is, is a little bit of the Greek syntax. It's just fun to kind of look at it a little bit. It's in a perfect passive verb. So it could be read this way. I wrote it out in my notes. Rejoice, O long ago graced one. The Lord's with you. This is the plan of God. Mary was in the plan of God from the beginning. And though she is referred to as a woman blessed by other women, she is one that she, I think she understood that she needed a savior. This was a beautiful message, but it was troubling to her. She's young, right? Maybe ages 13 through 16, a lot of theologians think. She's never called righteous, but she is called blessed among women. Look at verses 42 through 43. There's some fascinating thoughts in here. Elizabeth cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women. Now that phrase has been lifted out and has been made something so much more than what it means. It is amazing that God used Mary and she is certainly blessed. But she wouldn't have known that for a while. <laughs> she would have been ostracized and all kinds of problems would have come from it. But he says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now look at this. This is they understand what's going on here. These two ladies know what's going on. And how it has happened to me, listen to this, that the mother of my Lord would come to me. Elizabeth knows that Mary has the Messiah within her. That's astounding, isn't it? And it's humbling. But you'll notice in verse 29, she's struggling to get her mind around this. She's, she's perplexed is the idea here. She's, I don't get this at this statement. She's pondering of what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting is going on here. Gabriel's come from the presence of, of God. It, it, it doesn't tell us in this text, but when we see other angels who come to announce the birth of the shepherds, there's great light. When we see the the, the the angels announcing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says they're shining as bright as anything, right? 
So certainly there is great perplexity here as she begins to ponder and think through this. God is breaking his silence again. Look at verse 30. The angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Uh, This most shocking, most miraculous revelation is still to come, right? She's just going, there's an angel here. (laughs) There's still the shocking revelation of how this child's going to come into you. And she's saying, how can this be? The word found, again, is a, another good verb. It's an aorist tent, meaning she's, this is God doing this to her. She's found favor, and sometime in the past, God's lavishing his grace on her. And now she certainly, certainly needs an extra measure of grace to do what she has to do. But don't miss the importance here that the Son of God is coming to dwell. And think about this. As I thought about this this week, I thought not only is he come to dwell with sinners, but he's going to dwell in a sinner. That's pretty astounding. I, I think there's so many things I can get rabbit trails here, but think about life in the womb. Man, is our world messing this up. Life in the womb. Jesus was conceived, goes full term. He's eternal life. That's what he's called. I am the eternal life. That's what he's referred to. He's in the womb of Mary. This is an amazing thing. This is, and this, he's in the womb of someone who is a sinner, so there's going to have to be a block from her nature to his and who he is. And these are what the verses begin to describe. Look at verse 31. The angel says, look, behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. At this point, she already knew she was marrying a man named Joseph. I imagine in her mind, she's thinking, well, yeah, we're probably going to have children, and apparently it's going to be named Jesus. But this is a description of a child that has just unfathomable greatness. Look at the beginning of verse 32. He will be great. He will be great. This is coming from two sinners, two, two sinners who will be a, a mother who will carry the babe, an earthly father who will protect the babe. And this child is going to be great, the greatest of all children ever born. In verse 15, if you just look back there, the Bible says that John the Baptist would be great before the Lord. It uses the same word. He would be great. But what a difference. Because in order for John the Baptist to be great, God would have to make him great. In fact, his greatness would have to be accredited to him because on his own, he too was a sinner. And so in order for him to be great, God would have to do that to him. And so in a way, his greatness was imputed to him, but not Jesus. Jesus' greatness is unqualified. His greatness is gained by his eternal existence, by his deity, by who he is. God made John the Baptist great, and he was. He was a, Jesus said he was the greatest uh, man born among women, right? But Jesus' greatness was not something he had to do, and oh, was it great. When we study his teaching, we were overwhelmed at the greatness of his teaching. We're overwhelmed at his knowledge. We're overwhelmed at his miracles and his healing. And most of all, we're overwhelmed that he could conquer death, beat Satan, sin, and so forth. He, we're overwhelmed at that greatness. Who could do that? But in here, in this scene, we have a young woman in Galilee. She's waiting for her wedding ceremony. 
the consummation of her marriage to Joseph. And in this moment, this glorious angelic being from the presence of God is now speaking to her, and she's a nobody. And yet God is using her. The scriptures have been spoken through angels and prophets all through the Old Testament, making revelation. But here he chose to speak to a young gal. That baby is going to be placed in your womb. There's one other term that I want to just take a peek at. It says that the son will be called the most high. A lot of people struggle with that term because that's a term only used for God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Psalms 47, 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared and great king over all the earth. 2 Samuel twenty two fourteen, the Lord thunder from heaven and the Most High utters his voice. Psalms 9, verse 2, I will be glad and exalt and I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Those are all references to Yahweh. And yet he's called the Son of the Most High. He's called great. He is given the glory of God in a sense and recognizes having it. In fact, Isaiah 48, 11 says, God says, I will share my glory with no one. And yet Jesus has it. John 17, 5, Jesus in his prayer before his death says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we already heard from John where he says, we saw his glory and beheld it. See, Jesus is the one whom can only could say, I and the Father are one. No one else could say that. He bears the same essence. He bears the same character. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purifications of sins, man's sins, not his, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 1 Corinthians 1.24 calls him the wisdom and power of God. He is the only one that says, can say, if you know me, you know the Father. He is the only one who can say, if you honor me, you honor the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Bible gives great detail here that Jesus was God with us. And when you study the religions of the world, they all reject him as God. And thus they reject the only way to God. But that's Christmas for us, isn't it? And all of this is happening in this stunning revelation to this young woman. And yet, here he is. He's coming. <laughs> and we embrace these truths, don't we? we? We sing great carols like this. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, veiled in flesh. Listen to this. What? The Godhead see? Wow. We see the Godhead as we look into that babe in the manger. Mary would watch this sinless child die for her own sins. She would be alive for that. Well, this miraculous position of eternal greatness is all done through the triune God. Look at verse 34. Mary says, well, how is this going to happen? She says, well, how is this going to happen? And maybe she lost some focus for a little bit as verses 32 and 33 are kind of going by as she's starting to think, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to be pregnant, I'm not married, and all those things are going through her mind. And yet, 
And yet God says how he's going to do it. Look with me at verse 32. We left off with he'll be great. And he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. What a description that has been described all through the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said, here's how it's going to happen, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High, here's a very key word, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, you have to remember, history tells us that young Hebrew girls would pray that they would give birth to the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. There's no debate in in the Hebrew history of a coming Messiah. They knew it. Most Hebrews today or Jews today missed him and are still waiting for some kind of Messiah, but this was a tremendous opportunity. A kingdom without no end is coming. And so here Gabriel begins to answer, this is how it's going to happen. The triune God will take care of everything, Mary. That verb there, overshadow. We get our English word eclipse from it. And this is the idea of why the Spirit of God chose this word here. It, it completely, an eclipse will completely envelop like darkness, right? When, we, when you see an eclipse that just takes out the sun or the moon. It's blocking here. When we, he uses this word, it's, it's teaching us that God is blocking the sin nature of Mary. Joseph's not a part of it because we'll see that they don't uh, have normal relationships within their marriage till after the birth of Jesus Christ. And so now God has to block the sin nature of Mary from this child. And so this term is very important. It, it comes completely over her. And there's no other way to account for his sinless if she is a product in any way of Mary's womb of, of her nature. He's sinful. And so here we have this triune God directly acting as the power of the Most High. The Holy Spirit is going to wrap around Mary, completely overshadow her, and this holy God is going to produce, think about this, a holy child. The Spirit of God is going to place that child in the womb of Mary. So we have a holy child. His name is Jesus He's God with us. He's completely shrouded in the Holy Spirit. And this passage rejects any relationship between Joseph and Mary, any of the crude thoughts of some irreligious people of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful teaching of how God protects the child from the sin nature of Mary. And that flies in the faith of the Catholic world, doesn't it? The or some of the Eastern Orthodox and so forth. It's so important to understand that. It is God who set that child aside so he could be sinless. If, he's, if he has her sin nature, his ministry is worthless here. And yet the Lord provided for us, didn't he? See, this is glorious instruction. It flows right to our salvation. Jesus was eternally great. And he was conceived by the plan of the triune God. The whole trinity is involved in this 
miraculous conception. Third, we come to the reaction to truth. There's a reaction to truth. These are difficult circumstances. I, I know you've thought with me on this, but what, what do you tell your family? What, what do you do with this? Well, it takes faith. They, they had to have faith, right? This is why these are people that we long to meet one day, because they have faith. They had to believe what probably nobody else would believe, right? And so in verse 36, he, he, the angel gives her some encouragement, right? She's, she's overwhelmed. She's a young girl. She's a young woman. He says, look, behold, he, even your relative Elizabeth, she too has conceived a son in her old age. It's different, <laughs> But you know that alone, that she could be pregnant at this age, you know this is miraculous because she's been called barren. And look, she's already in her sixth month. And so to help Mary with her faith, Gabriel reveals a, another miracle has taken place. And then verse 37, look at this, this great statement to secure Mary, to help her understand the God she is now serving in a unique way, for nothing will be impossible with God. It is just capstone statement on the limitless, infinite power of God to do something. Because you know her mind's going, I think I'm going to have to work through this a couple more times. <laughs> Hebrews says this, without faith it's impossible to please him. But look what verse 38 happens. Mary says, behold, the bondservant of the Lord. And just stop right there. Mary says... Okay, I'm in this for life. This is a young girl. I am in this for life. I am your bondservant. I will serve you forever. That's what she's saying. This is quite a statement. And in fact, it's such a massive statement. She says, whatever's going to happen here, whatever your word is, let it be done. Boy, if we could just live that way and talk that way. <laughs> we question God a lot, right? And I think there's a point where, you know, oh God, I don't understand what you're doing. And then there's a questioning, God, I don't like what you're doing. See, what comes with the Holy Spirit is great faith. Remember, this overshadowing had to affect her as well. And so she comes back and she says, yes, this is impossible, humanly speaking, but I am now your bondservant. I am a lifer. Whatever you say, let's, let's do it. And the Bible says the angel departed. If we flip back to Matthew chapter 1, we want to pick up Matthew's response. We looked at that last week, another difficult situation. He loved Mary. He's committed to her. He's been working on his his endowment to get together. I mean, he's trying to provide a home. He's doing all the things that a, bro, a groom would be doing in order to get ready. And all of a sudden, and he finds out that she's with child before they came together, verse 18. He doesn't understand what the angel has said at this point. He's overwhelmed. He drifts off to sleep. And God speaks to him through a dream. And he now knows he's going to have a son. And he's going to be Emmanuel. Look at verse 24. Faith makes men and women do incredible things. 
because it's impossible to please God without it. The Bible says in verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now there's a, there's a narrative there that doesn't fill in all the blanks, but a lot of things had to happen. But a lot of them weren't good either, in a sense. I mean, humanly speaking, can you imagine at one point his reaction and, and relief, but then at another point is, uh-oh, what is the family going to believe? Mary's going through the same thing. I'm going to be a bondservant. Whatever your word says, Lord, that's what I want to do. But in reality, following Jesus, following God, obeying him, there is a cost, isn't there? And I think we see that as we follow them to the manger scene in Bethlehem. They are alone in a society where uh, they would not allow family ever to stay in a hotel. It wasn't too long. There was articles that came out that the hotel business had such a difficulty getting going when Israel was birthed um, in the 1940s as they got their freedom and um, their, their statehood and so forth because no one would stay in the hotels because they stayed with people. They stayed with family. They're known for that. And yet we find them alone. And so as they look at this, and as you see their obedience, and, and here in verse 24, he woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord, he took Mary as his wife. Mary says, I'm your bronze servant, let it be done to me as you have said. There is great consequences that probably came with that. But that's what faith does. What's your faith? Is it in Jesus? Does he strengthen you to do difficult things? When's the last difficult thing you did for Jesus? Where you stood for him? You knew you were going to get some pushback from it, or, or just the fear you had and anxiety you had in yourself when you had an opportunity to share him. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you let faith push you in a way, a God-given faith push you to do something, say something, live some way that you had not before? That's a mark of a follower, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study this young couple, we marvel at them. And they go through whatever went through. We're not told what happened. We don't, we're not even told of their wedding ceremony. At this point, they've not had the ceremony. That's, that's where it finally is the legal requirements all get met. They have a ceremony. It goes on for several days, and the marriage is consummated, and they're married. We don't see any of that. All we see is them on their way to Bethlehem. There is other evidence of Joseph's obedience. He takes Jesus after his birth to the temple. He knows the Old Testament. He takes his son there to be dedicated and circumcised. And we also see him take his young family to Egypt. Herod's going to try to kill the baby. The Magi are warned and they tell Joseph and off to Egypt they go, a, a foreign land, a difficult place. They wander down there for possibly several years. We see him do that. Then the last time we really see Joseph on the scene is they've come back and they're at the Passover. And their back seem to be in with the family, right? They're marching along and they leave Jerusalem and Jesus is back in the tabernacle. And that's the last scene that we see of Joseph. Mary, we have a little closer view of her. She's with Jesus throughout his ministry in many different points. But particularly, she's there at his death. 
And our Lord is so gracious, you know that scene, turns to Mary and says, Mary, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And he commits the care of Mary into the apostle John. And tradition tells us that John took care of her the rest of the days of her life. But we see a couple who obeys the Lord. One last thing that really is something that should be mentioned in verse 25 of this text. The Bible says that Joseph kept her virgin until she gave birth to her son. That's commitment. He had all the marital rights and benefits, and particularly in a male-dominated society that would have been in this first century here. He, forced, he set that off, and that's so important because that tells you that Joseph and Mary were committed that no way did they ever humanly want to mar that this son that Mary would give birth was not fully the son of God. That's what faith does. That's what faith does in hard things. It gives up rights. Those are followers of Jesus. Well, let me just conclude with a practical thought. How do we make Christmas season a season of worship? Well, that's anything but in society, right? It's a worship, but it's not of the Lord, right? It's worship of, of whatever, right? Uh, on, on, uh, All-knowing, all all-seeing guy dressed in red. I, I said, I chose that carefully for you parents in here. But how do we, how do we really worship in this season? I know for me... Um, it's, it's my study that really gets me into it, right? It's a busy, busy season for us as pastors. We're, we're involved in so many things going on. There's lots of things we got to be at and do and lots of teaching that goes on. Uh, but it's, it's the Word of God. It, it really it helps me embrace this time of year to worship the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to just give you four real quick thoughts here and then the worship team will come back on. How, how we make it a worshipful season is this. Listen to this. Practice defining and explaining the real meaning of Christmas. Practice. Practice explaining it. You know, for those of us that have empty nests now, we can just kind of go through life. Oh, yeah, this is great Christmas. Jesus came and so on and so you with children in a home, there's just great opportunities, right? Because you're sitting down and you're talking about this with your children. But, but those of us that maybe have children out of a home, we still have to rehearse the gospel, don't we? Spurgeon said it so well, and he probably stole it from somebody else. We preach the gospel to ourselves, And so in this season, as you get in your car and you hear Christmas music, good, bad, or indifferent, as you hear that, preach the gospel to yourself, define and explain Christmas. What is it? What does it mean to you? And when we define and explain things in our mind, they get on our tongue. And then when somebody asks us, because we have thought through it, how we've, we've thought about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've thought about the dark world and how Christ can pierce that darkness. We've thought about the incarnation in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, adding completely to himself flesh. You know, he's completely God. He's com and completely, man, we, we start to wrestle with that and so that he could die for us. And we start thinking about that baby in that cradle and we, and we work through that and we explain it in our minds and we define it. When somebody asks you, you get to tell them. 
I'll tell you, if you think through those things, and a lot of times it's, for me, it's driving a car and I got, you know, there's some stations that are all Christmas music now. They started in November, you know. I'll listen to that and start to think about that. Can you define and explain Christmas from a Christian? Can you do that? Are you helping others explain that? That'll help you make it a worshipful season. I think another thing, and there's, there's a lot. I just, I just picked out just a few things that God laid on my heart. Understand the correct nature of gift-giving and receiving. What a good point to teach our children and teach ourselves. Understand the correct nature of gift-giving and receiving. And the way we understand that is the gift of the Father to us. He gifts His Son to us. He, he does it in an agape way, uh, an unconditional way. He is not requiring anything from us. We do not get to him through our good works. We don't get this blessing of the Savior, this great gift of the Savior from what we have done, not according to our righteousness, but according to his. That's how we get it. And so that sets that mindset of giving and receiving. For many of us, giving is a lot easier, isn't it? But look, this year I want you to think about receiving a little bit. If you're a Christian, you received the Lord Jesus Christ. And you did it with grace and humility because you know you didn't deserve it. And so the gospel teaches us much about giving and receiving. And we can talk to that, talk with one another, and work with our children and our grandchildren, and we can talk about that. And and when somebody gives you a gift at the office or wherever, there's an opportunity to say, hey, can we just talk about gifts for a minute? Can I share something with you? Third, Christmas should lead us to God's word. Boy, there's a lot of funny stories going on out there about Christmas. <laughs> Parents, <laughs> you're going to have to make some big decisions here. Is it the fat guy in the red suit that dominates everything? Or is it Jesus? And it's the Bible. It's reading these stories. These are narratives. And so they're wonderful to sit and ponder a little bit. One of the things I love about preaching narratives is you can ponder. You, you don't have to read anything in. There's enough there, but you can ponder. Read the Bible. See, Christmas leads you to God's word. Because everybody else has a false view of Christmas out there, right? The world has a false view of all that. It leads us back to God's word, and this is why we preach on it week after week in this season. And finally, just one other thought. Again, you, you can share ones that you could encourage me with. But one more, Christmas leads you to church. And Scott's going, here he goes. He's, he knows you're thinking about staying in those pajamas on Christmas, so he's got one more point for you. That's not it. Where else are you going to get together with a group of redeemed people who have received the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ than here? I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be on Christmas morning celebrating the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ than with you. And yes, we miss our children. Not all of our children will be home this year. We miss them. And that, there's nothing, that, that's beautiful. God gave us family. That, that's, that's not, no takeaway from that. But Christmas drives us to the elect. God draws the elect together around the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. It draws us together, doesn't it? Christmas drives you to church. 
And it makes us glad. And I, and I have the unique privilege of looking at your faces and preaching to you on Sunday mornings. And there's more, no greater joy than to speak God's word to you. Because you're my family. I'm going to spend eternity with you. And so where else would we want to be on Christmas than the church? Father in heaven, through your word we've grasped that life was not easy in this first century. It's a young couple. They had designs and plans. Joseph was working hard, doing everything he could, most likely to get his dowry together. Mary was like any young girl, her dreams and excitement of marriage and her training by her own mother most likely was ready to come into play. And all of a sudden, God invades them. And in his sovereign plan, before the foundations of the world, was to bring his son into a dark world. And she was going, he was going to come through a woman born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, all very difficult circumstances, all set apart from the sin nature of man, and he was going to do it in a spectacular way. And so, Lord, as we've sat here and contemplated the true Christmas story, we marvel that you did that with us in mind. You protected the Lord Jesus Christ from our fallen human nature. You enveloped him and protected him in the womb of Mary so that he would be sinless in the womb, sinless outside the womb, sinless through his life, sinless on the cross, sinless on the resurrection, and sinlessly sits at your right hand. All to be our God, Savior, and King. And so, Lord, that makes Christmas pretty special. So, Lord, I pray that we would strive to do that in our homes, on our jobs, our ministries, wherever we go, we would be ready to talk about Christmas, the true meaning of it. Lord, bless those words as we share them with people. Save people at this time of year, Lord. Draw them to them. Give them the greatest gift they could ever receive, the gift of salvation, free from works, by grace alone, through faith alone, through our precious Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.